Hello, welcome to Government Girl, the podcast for people who wish they could ask their high school government teachers questions about the news. Today's episode is really special because for the first time, I have guests joining me. In the room, I have my colleagues Tim Smith and Caitlin Robbins, as well as Caitlin's student teacher, Emma Baker, and my student teacher, Kayla B. Miller. So in this episode, we will be having a conversation about the crisis in Ukraine. Mr. Smith, what's your take on the crisis in Ukraine? Uh, As with any of these types of questions, I tend to put a lot of that into historical context. So my take on the Ukraine is, like the rest of the world, I was initially shocked that Putin actually pulled the trigger and did do it. Though in the weeks leading up to it, when he was putting his armies on the border, I mean, it it seemed like he was really getting ready to do it. But none of us really expect something horrific like a terrible war to break out until it actually does break out. You know, it's like we're always surprised by it. And yet you look back in hindsight and you realize, no, this is classic Putin. Uh, And it's not just Putin. It's... uh, Russian history, too. He's acting like a classic Russian leader whose primary concern is the security of Mother Russia. Um, You know, Stalin was the same way. In many ways, Putin's acting a lot like Joseph Stalin. He's also acting a lot like Adolf Hitler, too, though I'm sure he would have me poisoned if he knew I said that. So what what is... um What is Putin's main motivation here? Well, if you listened to his weird hour-long rambling speech where he actually got very emotional, which is kind of odd for him because usually he's cool as a cucumber. You know, he's a cold-blooded assassin. So, uh, but apparently this is really personal for him. He firmly believes that Russia has one of the great destinies on the planet as one of the you know great powers. It was a superpower when it was the Soviet Empire. And even before it became the Soviet Empire, it was the empire of the czars. So ever since Russia created its modern state from the 1500s on under, you know, Ivan the Terrible and then the other Ivans and then the Romanovs, um, <clears throat> it's basically spread out like empires do, swallowed up lots of other groups, ethnicities, cultures. But what Russia was was always very much a military empire. And you can go all the way back to the Mongols when they were subjugated by the Golden Horde, one of the big part of the, the Mongol nation. They had to pay tribute, but they were still allowed to develop on their own, you know, keep their own culture like Novgorod and Moscow and, and Kiev or Kiev, they all kind of were principalities under the Mongols. That, um, but eventually they threw off the Mongol yoke and they were struggling for power like little principalities will often do with each other. But once the Russians created their empire, like I said, it was purely a military venture. And uh, they expanded, my God, they expanded all the way across Asia, Siberia. By the 1600s, they were over next to China. People don't realize by the 1700s, they were in Alaska. And, you know, by the late 1700s, early 1800s, when the first American explorers like Lewis and Clark were heading out to the West Coast, what we call the West Coast, The Russians had already been there for decades in Alaska, and they were already down by San Francisco, where San Francisco is now. Mm. There's a river just north of San Francisco called the Russian River, because that was the furthest extent of their fur trading posts. But, you know, they did it mainly through setting up fur trading posts, and then they would uh, dominate local indigenous peoples like the way we did, you know, like any empire spreading out. But like I said, it was primarily a military-focused empire, and it was top-down rule, always in Russian history, always top-down, extremely autocratic. Uh, Power is 
concentrated almost entirely in the hands of, at first it was a czar, you know, then it was, you know, Comrade Stalin, the premier, secretary of the general secretary, whatever title he wanted to give himself. He was a czar also. And Putin has basically accrued enough power to himself over the last 22 years and made himself indispensable to the Russian system that he's a modern czar. And he's thinking exactly like the czars have always thought. Like I said, I'm rambling, I'm sorry, but <laughs> Russia has a great destiny on earth. It's one of the great powers. And therefore, these peripheral peoples who have been part of the Russian Empire before, uh, they need to be again. You know, mm -hmm. they, they got away in a moment of weakness at the end of the Cold War. And so in his mind, I believe, I can't read the guy's mind, thank God, but it's, like I said, a lot of what he's acting like, it seems pretty straightforward. He believes that they belong back in the Russian sphere. Russian leaders have always thought in terms of spheres of influence, which, as you know, goes back to the beginning of the state system in Europe in the 1600s with the Peace of Westphalia and uh, 1700s with the great powers batting each other, you know, Austria, France, Great Britain. Well, Russia joined the state system and uh, they always kind of just played with minor peoples like pawns on a chessboard I believe Putin still thinks that way mm. whereas even though it's certainly not perfect the modern state system because of things we've gone through in the first two world wars and the ideas of liberalism, liberal democracy coming out of America and the French Revolution and the Latin American revolutions. And there's been more of a focus on human rights and you know things like that are part of the milieu of the modern state system. So we've created this uh, system since the end of World War II which was greatly influenced by the US and Britain and the more what we would call democratic empires. I know people in the U.S. may not like to think of themselves as being an empire, but you know, when something quacks like a duck and walks like a duck, you can call it a duck. We're basically an empire, right? So long story short, Putin's a modern czar, and in his mind, the Ukrainians are a breakaway province, similar to the way the Chinese view Taiwan. But the Chinese system is very different, and the leaders in China are just a hell of a lot smarter and not nearly as impatient, though they're getting impatient. You can tell by all the warplanes that have been flying through Taiwan airspace recently. But uh, still, they take a longer view. Putin, I believe, he's 69 now. I think he's thinking his time's running out, and he wants to leave his mark on history for his beloved mother Russia yeah I guess so that's that's a question I still have is when I think about what is Putin's end game mm -hmm. the international community isn't going to recognize you know if he is successful in installing a puppet government in Ukraine the international community is never going to recognize it what and, and then he's going to have all these I mean really heavy sanctions uh, that are going to completely destroy the Russian economy um, like, what's the end game? <laughs> well, never say never when it comes to history. Sure. Eventually, with enough water under the bridge, years past, uh, we just may recognize a fait okay. accompli like swallowing up Ukraine. Putin will be gone. Mm -hmm. There'll be new leadership, but we might. You never know. It depends on the mix of the nations in the world's own interests, right? Every nation in the world operates primarily on, in its own self-interest. Um, but we have created these international alliances, treaties, organizations. I mean, it's really complex, the world playground today. Honestly, I think of the global community of nations almost like a playground because the way nations act with each other, they're kind of immature when you think about it, they're almost like little kids in a sandbox, you know? Like, no, that's my toy. No, you know, bang, 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 and they hit each other over the head with it. 
it's hard for them to talk in a grown-up manner. But we do, we have created a lot of systems since the world wars to try to facilitate talking in a more mature manner. And every once in a while we manage to do it. But I believe Putin would be okay. He's an opportunist. I think he would be okay with the Ukraine even if it wasn't um, recognized as now being part of the Russian Federation or empire. He would be okay as long as it was utterly destroyed like they did to Syria so that it would not be a threat to Mother mm. Russia, which is why you see the, the usual Russian military tactic of, uh, excuse my language, which is bombing the shit out of cities, including targeting civilians or just not really caring whether civilians are in the way, but they're actually deliberately targeting civilians. And they know what they're doing because they've done this in Syria for years. You pretend like you're going to create these humanitarian corridors and let civilians get out, but you don't want them getting out. On a, in a military tactical way, you want that city that you've besieged to be filled with a bunch of helpless civilians because they're eating up all the resources that otherwise the soldiers and the defenders could use to last longer. Hmm. So the way you end a siege, even in modern times, is to cram that city with as many people as possible, especially a bunch of helpless mouths that can't fight. And you know, then the defenders are going to have to make decisions. How much food do we give to the defenders so they can keep manning the walls and fighting? versus how much do we give to the babies and the old people. And so they want them to make those choices. Uh, they learned that really well from the Germans when they besieged Leningrad for, what, um, three years or something. And uh, anyway, it's, we're looking at some really horrible stuff, and it's only just beginning, unfortunately, yeah. I think. In, in my opinion, Ukraine could easily turn into another Syria. And you see what, what's happened in Syria for the last 11 years. Of course, it's a different situation, much more complex. There are a lot of different players and a lot of different factions and groups in Syria. But once Russia got involved and the other great powers of the world, including us, we kind of backed off and just sort of let Russia mess around there. Turkey tried to intervene some too. Um, but it was mainly the Russians siding with Bashar al-Assad's regime, and they very deliberately used modern siege tactics. Surround the city, make sure the civilians don't escape so that they can eat up the resources, medical resources as well, because then you bomb the hell out of them, and you just create a lot of you know, uh, casualties to overwhelm their resources and eventually wear down their morale so that the city or town will surrender. That's exactly what they're starting to do to uh, Ukrainian cities and towns right now. <clears throat> so I know recently I've started to hear the word war crimes being thrown around as we seem to be getting evidence that Putin was or is deliberately targeting civilians. Does that, I, I know NATO wants to avoid getting pulled into military confrontation at all costs. Does that change anything? Labeling his actions war crimes? Does that warrant any sort of additional response? Um, do you mean if we label these actions and document them well, which they already are, mm -hmm. uh, that are pretty obviously war crimes? Like, does he care that they're war crimes? Is that, like... Yeah, like, is there, is there any repercussion for committing war crimes? Does it change the international community's response? A sitting head of state of a powerful nation like Russia is practically untouchable for war crimes. This is why, and, you know, um, I know some of your audience may not like to hear this, but this is why none of our presidents have ever been dragged up in front of the ICC for war crimes, because they've technically committed war crimes also. When you are sending drones over civilian populations and there's a lot of collateral damage, that's what we've been doing during our war on terror, then you're committing a war crime. So every single one of our presidents 
who's been in office during the war on terror could actually technically be charged by the ICC with war crimes and their secretaries of defense and secretaries of state hmm. and vice presidents and pretty much all of the major executive officers. But of course, we're the United States, so they're not gonna do that to our leaders. But since the entire world, almost, is condemning Putin's actions, people are opening up investigations and accusing him of war crimes, and they already have. There's war crimes investigations of the ICC going all the way back to 2008 when he invaded Georgia. You know, the whole South Ossetia thing where he used the same game plan. Oh, there's Russian speakers there. They're being oppressed. There's a genocide. I need to go save them. I'll roll in the tanks. Humanitarian military action. Good Lord, I've never heard of such <laughs> BS. Well, I have, but you know, it's just so ridiculously stupid and obviously false, but it just, it doesn't matter to these kinds of guys. That's to answer your question, no, I don't think it matters to him at all. He's done it before. He's already being investigated for war crimes. So what did, what would these investigations like show? Like, you did it? No? Like... Well, it'll take years and years before anything ever substantial ever possibly could happen. And he would actually have to be out of office and not supported by the current Russian government who would allow him to be handed over to the ICC. Um. Or we actually hire, you know, security consultants, i.e. mercenaries, the international police. You know, we do actually have international police, you know, they're mm -hmm. called Interpol. And they have been known to go into some of these Places like uh, Liberia, I believe they got, was it Jonathan Taylor? I think he was president of Liberia. Might be getting my countries mixed up in West Africa, where he, uh, he actually got, when he was out of power, they went in and they got him and arrested him and took him to the court and put mm -hmm. him on trial for crimes against humanity. Uh, Slobodan Milosevic, the president of Serbia during the breakup of Yugoslavia, who uh, had his guys committing horrible war crimes in Bosnia. You know, they had like rape camps and stuff like that. Um, he actually eventually, when he got ousted by his people, he got arrested and handed over to the ICC. Uh, but right before he was going to be convicted of crimes against humanity, he had a heart attack and died. So they never quite got that, his conviction on record. He escaped by dying. It takes years. So right now it's just rhetoric. Yes. But could, if... Well, it's a little more than that because the ICC, or International Criminal Court, they have opened up investigations. And that has some kind of seriousness to it. But, but seriousness for, like, years down the road. Yeah. Not something that's going to bring any sort of immediate response or change. Unless, uh, you know, probably not going to happen, but unless the, uh, there's a coup in Russia and <clears throat> some group finally decides it's just enough, we need to get rid of Putin, mm -hmm. and they take him out. In all likelihood, though, they wouldn't bother with an ICC um, trial. They would just shoot him, okay. you know, in the back of the head, which is the traditional way to assassinate people if you're in the Russian secret police. Hmm. The uh, NKVD did that under Stalin, the KGB did that throughout the Cold War. I always wondered why they used that method and waste a lot of bullets, because they shot a lot of people in the back of the head. But that's that was like their calling card. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I know. Gruesome, isn't it? Yes. Um, so, I had another question. <laughs> I guess my like question is, like, now that we're seeing what's happening, do you anticipate or do you think that they'll go into another country after this? I would have, a few weeks ago, I would have been very hesitant to think that. Just like most, hopefully, sensible, rational people. Like I said before, these kinds of things usually come as a surprise to most of us because we just don't want to think that they're possible. Right. But now that he's actually done it, and uh, I read more and more 
<clears throat> I honestly have to say I'm worried because, uh, you know, the latest thing that they're talking about, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, your guy. My guy. Yeah. He, uh, <laughs> he's obviously been crying for help, right? His country yeah. is under massive assault by a very tyrannical uh, power with a, a really ruthless army and they've done it before right now mm -hmm. it's on an even larger scale than ever before and he wanted a no-fly zone but nato immediately had to shut that down because as you know if we impose a no-fly zone you know what that really means no i don't you don't no okay that means <laughs> we send nato pilots in nato jets into the ukrainian airspace and they target russian anti-air defense systems huh. manned by Russian soldiers. And when I mean target, I mean blow up. Right. So you're killing Russian soldiers. So that's an act of war. And you're shooting down Russian planes. Hmm. Yeah, that's war. Yeah. So that's, that brings us into the conflict. That is World War Three. I mean, in some ways, I've read some analysis. Uh, uh, what the heck was her name? She is really sharp. Uh, she was the Irish-American lady who was in Trump's impeachment trial that was an expert in Russia. Gosh, somebody fact-check me real quick. Uh, anyway, I read an article from her the other day, and she said, if you really think about it, we've really been in World War III for a while. And that was actually pretty cogent, you know, really good strategic analysis. She's a sharp one. God, I wish I could remember her name. Caitlin will find it for you. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> um, while she's Hill looking at that. Fiona Hill. Fiona, yep. Fiona Hill. You That's beat me it. to it. I just read oh. <laughs> Yeah. So, Brain yeah. is faster than the computer. <laughs> um, but the way most people would think of World War III, if NATO imposes a no-fly zone, that's the beginning of World War III. Because then NATO forces, including Americans, are now killing Russians. Mm -hmm. I mean, now that's now the line. It's, it's and that conflict. is the line that Biden and the rest of the West, the rest of NATO, really feel like they just cannot cross right now, no matter. I don't know what it would take for them to actually cross it, but I'm worried that there may be a point where they do cross that line. Yeah. And that worries the hell out of me because I don't know if you know this, but uh, whenever Putin does his war games, with his armies, uh, they practice using nukes. They have more nuclear warheads than any other country in the world, over 4,500, I think, at this point. The U.S. has slightly less, but we have the second largest amount of nukes. And we tend to have a lot of ICBMs. They have a lot of those, too. But they also have a lot of tactical nuclear weapons, which are called battlefield nukes, which could you know, take out like a whole unit or something, but not a city. The ICBMs are city busters. So the tactical ones are just a smaller one. Yeah. And the ICBM, what does that ICBM stand for? Intercontinental, Intercontinental Ballistic Missile? Yep, mm -hmm. you got it. Intercontinental Ballistic Missile. I always refer to it when I teach the kids, you know, like when I've got American history, I teach about the Cold War. I say, well, this... If you're thinking about the results of a nuclear strike, it's going to make you go to the bathroom and, you know, do number two, so ICBM. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, that's such a dad joke. Yeah, I like that. I shouldn't be joking about horrible things. Like, but really, honestly, when you're, when you're talking about nuclear devastation, yeah. you got to laugh, I guess. There's nothing else to do. Kind of laugh and cry at the same time. But no, Putin has, uh, his forces have practiced using a tactical nuke as a scare tactic. I, I could see that happening. If NATO gets involved, they might launch a tact nuke and take out some NATO airfield in Poland or something mm -hmm. with a nuclear strike. Is there any added concern over the nuclear site that Russia just took over? They got two now. Two now? <clears throat> what, Chernobyl and then? No, they've got two functioning nuclear two fun okay. power plants. Great. They just took over another one. I That's think great. Ukraine yeah. has four nuclear power plants, I think. Okay. Maybe five. So given that they already have so many nukes, is that 
is that psychological? Is it strategic? Is there any additional concern that they now have these two more? Does that... No, it's absolutely strategic because they're nuclear power plants. They're not producing nuclear weapons. Okay. They're producing power. Yeah. So they're trying to knock out Ukraine's electrical grid. Ah. And nuclear power plants provide a lot of electrical power. They're actually, honestly, the way to go if you want cleaner, more efficient energy, at least at the moment. They do have a big downside, though. Yeah. If you hit them with a lot of missiles, they're probably going to blow up and then create a new Chernobyl where the core melts down into the Earth's crust. That's bad. Bad. <laughs> yeah. Bad. Real bad. Real bad. So that's what people were afraid of as Japaritsia, which was the first mm-hmm. and biggest nuclear power plant. And the Russians, they rolled in. Uh, they didn't use their main battle tanks. They used light infantry and APCs, so I guess they were kind of thinking, let's not cause a nuclear meltdown. But they still rolled in and they were firing like crazy. You know, war is like the most chaotic thing that humans can do. You you can try to control a battlefield, and, but what a good general does is realizes that there's just it's just controlled chaos, basically. Mm-hmm. Barely controlled chaos. And the best generals are the ones that can think on the fly and be incredibly flexible because... The situation's always changing, and there's always fog of war. You don't really know exactly what's happening. Your intelligence that you get mm-hmm. might be, you know, five minutes old, but now it's already too old. Sorry, mm-hmm. I'm drifting off into military stuff now. <laughs> but I guess we're talking about the war in Ukraine. So. Yeah, no, I think that's interesting. So, yeah, ultimately, to circle way back around to your original question, I think Putin would be okay. He would be. He would love it if Ukraine would just roll over and surrender. That doesn't look like that's going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. They've got a very inspirational president in Zelensky. Go figure. The guy was a TV comedian, right? Have you ever seen his show? Mm-hmm. I've actually been no. looking at episodes of it recently. I mean, I knew where he came from, but I just never got around to it until, of course, his country got invaded. And now I'm like, oh man, I got to check out his show. It's cool. The guy is a great actor. It's hilarious. Really funny. And it even translates into pretty well. You know, comedy is usually very culturally specific, and it's hard to get it if you're not a member of the culture. But it actually translates pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he played a high school history teacher. Oh, no. A history (laughs) teacher whose students secretly recorded some rant that he was giving to a fellow teacher about the corrupt politicians and, and you know, how a history teacher could, you know, do better. And then he got elected president. In the show? <laughs> wow. Yeah, in the show. Are you about to be president? Because, of that, because of that rant. <laughs> oh, hell no. <laughs> Please don't wish that on me. I would not want that job. No, way. no it's too hard. Not hard. It's just I, I don't want to be a politician. I, no. Oh, Mm-mm. God. I know my kids ask me all the time when we do the unit on the presidency if mm-hmm. I would want to be president. And I'm mm-hmm. like, no. No. Well, it's inevitable. When you're Worst a government job. teacher, yeah. you know, they always start making that connection. Mrs. Stalker, really are you a government cute. teacher because you couldn't be a politician? Oh, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I've gotten that question. That's and it. I'm like, no. You mean those who can't or those who, what is it? What's those it? who can't teach. Yeah, those who and can't those who teach. Do, do. Yeah. And those who do, do. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Okay. I was like, no way. Yeah, no. Uh-uh. Never want to be like a politician. Teaching. Yeah. I would rather teach because I just love teaching. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As you can tell, you can't shut me so up. So do you think, yeah. like, and maybe this is just old news, and I just <clears> haven't read it, but, like, when Putin put, like, the nuclear, like, arms, like, in, like, high demand? Do you, On high alert. Yeah, high alert. Like, what did that really mean? That was an obvious threat. Okay. Yeah. He but, was reminding everybody, hey, I have I nukes. nukes. Yeah. Like, is it, like, hard to, like, de- like... Like throw up and like. Didn't you say Actually, that we're all pretty much always on yeah. high that's what I alert? Yeah, because we just always have them. That was that's that was obvious smokescreen BS. Because okay. every country that has nukes, they're always on high alert. They really are ready to go at a moment's notice. Mm-hmm. 
which should honestly be terrifying to every rational, thinking, good, decent, compassionate <laughs> human on the planet that we have all these different countries with nukes, and there's like at least half a dozen or more, okay? And of course, they're ready to go. You guys know how it works for our ICBMs, right? In the silos, like out in Montana or no. whatever? No. There's two Air Force officers. If you want to be one of the officers that actually turns the keys and launches the missiles, it's a missile command. And there's two of them, and they send them down into a silo for 24 hours, and they, they're cut off from all other communications. You've got to give up their cell phones, and they're just down there by themselves. And they're very, very, very highly trained, and they get orders, you know, will come through codes. They've got to break them open and look at them. It's really complex, lots of different steps. But in order to actually launch a missile, both officers have to insert a key and turn it at exactly the same time. It's just all these different fail-safes, right, for obvious reasons. But what they do is they test these officers all the time to see if they really would do it. Okay, And you never know when you're down there if it's a test or if it's the real thing. And no matter how much training these officers get, highly dedicated, patriotic Air Force officers huge percentage of them fail the tests no matter how much training they get which kind of gives me hope mm -hmm. that most humans even in the military highly trained to follow orders very patriotic when it comes down to it just couldn't bring themselves to launch a weapon that's going to incinerate half a million people mm -hmm. and you know create nuclear destruction and literally end civilization as we know it on the planet the thing is, though, most of the officers will do it. So on the flip side of that is, well, actually, there's plenty of people who will follow orders like that. Mm -hmm. So one of the things yeah, that's been um, compared a lot, because it's natural to try to compare events to, you know, what we know, oh, yeah. um, you know, is this World War Three? Is this... Look, a new Cold War, or is it something else that we've never really seen before in spite of the well, similarities? The easy answer to that is it's something else because it hasn't happened yet, right? Sure. Technically. But as you know, as historians, uh, a lot of history is repetitive. Mm -hmm. But my favorite quote about history comes from Mark Twain, and I always tell my classes, any students listening to this are going to, hopefully remember it and he said uh, history doesn't repeat itself but it rhymes <laughs> and I just love that quote because it just gets to the heart of it Mark Twain man one of the best utilizers of the English language ever that of course there's all kinds of patterns mm -hmm. to human nature human history but the details are never quite the same mm -hmm. and it's so complicated that the mix of details you're always going to get potentially something slightly different or something very different. You never really know what mm -hmm. path the, the major combination of complexities are going to steer it down. So, yeah, it's kind of, in a way, we've been in a Cold War for a while because Vladimir Putin sees it that way. It's pretty obvious that he has always looked through the lens of the Cold War continues. In his mind, Russia, you know, took it on the chin. He's described the collapse of the Soviet Union as one of the greatest catastrophes in history. But Putin's version of history is really a very different kind of personal, even twisted version of history. Like any classic dictator, they're going to twist things to their own ends, including history, right? And as you guys know, history is one of the most powerful tools for controlling mm -hmm. populations. You control the story, you control the end game, mm -hmm. supposedly, and that's in people's minds. Um, history is a tool for propaganda and indoctrination. And I guarantee every student I've ever taught, everything I've always said is totally true, okay? <laughs> never propagandized you at all, and I hope they believe me. <laughs> I believe you. Do you believe me? I do. I do have a question, though. Mm -hmm. If, like, we're going into the appeasement, like, era, do you think 
What do you this mean? Is, like, if we're if like we're viewing this as appeasement of like not helping out Ukraine. Oh, but we are helping out Ukraine. Right, we're giving them stuff, but like, do you think that a and organizing but like an economic blockade in the modern sense of the rogue nation? Yeah, and it's being pretty successful actually, mm-hmm. from what I've gleaned. This is Putin is actually right sometimes about some things. When he claimed the other day that these sanctions are an act of war, he's right. Because what we're doing is we're blockading Russia. But the world's economy is so complex now, right? We have to literally... Blockades aren't just ships parking outside Mm -hmm. your port and not letting trade get in. It's cutting down all the different interconnections of trade. So the internet, the cybersphere... Uh, credit institutions, mm-hmm. insurance companies, holy crap, everything is being cut off. Yeah. So Russia really is being economically isolated. Uh, I think whoever's making these decisions in the various you know, Western countries and their allies, somebody learned their lessons from 2014 and 2008 when they tried sanctions before and they finally figured out something that looks like it's actually possibly going to be successful. But even blockades throughout history, when they were successful, it took us four years, the British basically, it took the British four years to starve the Germans yeah. in World War I to the point where they finally gave in. Yeah. So how long is the economic blockade of Russia going to take yeah. before it finally caves and you know, starts a real negotiation, not these BS negotiations mm-hmm. that the Russians have been doing with the Ukrainians. So in a scenario where these sanctions are successful, does that look like Putin saying, okay, I'll get out of Ukraine? Or does that look like Russians saying, hey, you've destroyed our country, we're going to overthrow you? The Ukrainians overthrowing the Russians? No, the Russians. The Russian people looking around and seeing, I mean, what's become of their country and saying, we've had enough. Get out of here, Putin. I suppose you could look at this kind of strategically. I imagine some of our smart folks in Langley and other places are doing this same kind of calculation. Um, Putin... You know, no regime lasts forever, right? right? He may be in a race against time. He wants to get some kind of result in Ukraine that's going to satisfy his burning desire for Russian security. And he's balancing that against these sanctions, which just might actually bring Russia to its knees economically. It just might. Personally, I didn't think they were going to be able to do that because looking at past practice, the sanctions were always like just slapping Mm -hmm. him on the hand, right? But obviously that's what he remembered too. Mm -hmm. So now this new way of doing it, I mean, they're even talking about cutting off oil. Mm -hmm. They hadn't done that yet, right? Because Russia is the third largest producer of oil in the world and huge producer of national gas. And the Europeans especially really depend on that. We get eight to ten percent of our oil from Russia and we can easily replace it but of course they're all everything's globalized and commodities like natural gas and oil those markets get shaken up they're going to drive prices up mm-hmm. so obviously Biden and other leaders are really worried about even more inflation and runaway prices and what's how's that going to affect their populations and of course they're probably thinking politically too you know they're juggling all that they're thinking about elections um, yeah, any chance we wrap this up by the midterms? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure the political consultants and, you know, the professionals that run campaigns, oh, I'm sure they're calculating that. Yeah. But then again, this is such a big event. Mm-hmm. And you've seen plenty of things happen that we never really thought would happen, like the Swiss breaking their 200-year neutrality. My jaw hit the ground when I saw that. I was just like, what? Um, 
you know, it just reminds me that nothing ever really stays the same. And maybe sometimes we can live through truly uh, history-altering events. I hate using the phrase changing history because history just continues to march on you know mm -hmm. it, it never really stops and what you're really doing is just kind of altering the course if you think about history like a river that mm -hmm. sort of flows sometimes some event comes along that's like a giant boulder thrown into the flow of the river and now it goes in a different direction right mm -hmm. like the fall of the berlin wall or in this case the invasion of ukraine mm -hmm. The world's responses and everything swirling around these last 12 days and even the weeks leading up to it, but especially once he pulled the trigger. I was trying to liken in my mind what it feels like to me, and it most feels like 1989. I was in the Army still in 1989, just a young guy in his 20s, and the Berlin Wall came down. And then it's seemingly overnight, all those communist countries behind the Iron Curtain overthrew their communist overlords and tried to create republics and democracies. And I mean, it was like, I had never thought this would happen in my lifetime. Nobody thought that. I mean, when I was a teenager, the age of my students, it was the Cold War. Mm -hmm. And... Even when I was in the army in the late 80s, when things were easing up, we had Glasnost and Perestroika under Gorbachev and all that. Still, we were watching training films as soldiers. This is your enemy. And it was Russians, you know, and Iron Curtain block countries. We were training for a conventional war in Europe still. Hmm. And then overnight, things changed. Mm -hmm. And then instead, in 91, even before the Soviet Union collapsed, we went into Iraq. We were in the desert. And, you know, something new was happening. But then when you think it through the lens of history, it wasn't really new. There was just a bunch of stuff that we had ignored and not paid a lot of attention to that was bubbling up under the surface mm -hmm. while we were so focused on, oh, the world's divided between East and West, communism and freedom, you know. That was the way the world is. And then all of a sudden, the world wasn't like that anymore. This is one of those kind of moments. Yeah. I really feel that way. The whole, quote, world order is reordering itself. And Putin is definitely challenging the world order that was established by the end of World War II. Even though the Soviet Union was still very powerful, the world order that was established at the end of World War II, the world economy especially, the capitalist countries at first and then later once the Soviet Union collapsed, they operate under the Bretton Woods system. And then even that's evolved now into the WTO system, the World Trade Organization. And this is why you always hear in the news we talk about the G8 or the G7 or the G20 or whatever, you know, the world's top economies that basically get together and make all the rules for the whole rest of the world economy, whether the other little countries like it or not. Mm -hmm. And then... Anyway, sorry, I'm getting... No, I had a question. When getting you, off on a tangent. When you talked about, like, they're reordering the world, how they, like, interact, is that the word? Yeah. What do you mean? Um, like, is it that, like, Switzerland came mm -hmm. out as, like, you just think that we're going to use some sanctions more as opposed to a war, or... Well, if they see something that works, they'll keep using it. Sure. But apparently, if you want sanctions to work to punish a bad state actor, like in this case, Russia invading Ukraine, you need to literally get almost the entire world community behind it. Mm -hmm. Now, that's kind of cool in a way to see that happening. And this may actually stop Russia. It may save Ukraine. I mean, obviously, there's been a lot of damage done to Ukraine already, but it's going to get a hell of a lot worse if it keeps going. The longer it goes on, the more it gets towards, you know, Syria. Uh, you want to see what Ukraine could look like in a year? Look at Syria right now, okay? Um, but, yeah, that could end up, in a way, being a positive because you could have this whole world community that actually has teeth, 
and stops just really blatant, egregious, aggressive acts like this. And the thing is, I think the world order is under threat in that way because if Russia gets away with this, obviously other potentially just as bad actors are looking at Putin. And there's a lot of Putin imitators in the world. And uh, if he gets away with it, then they're going to do it too. And I'm not talking about China. China's a little different ball game because China's just organized in a different way. It's run in a different way. They've got a very different culture going back thousands of years through their history too. And they just, their leadership sees this game in a different way than say a Russian czar would see it. But you think this through though. If the global community succeeds in using these massive sanctions and funneling military aid also. Don't forget we're doing that. We're sending the Ukrainians a crap ton of anti-tank missiles, Stinger missiles to shoot down Russian aircraft. And if they start funneling old Russian fighter jets, which they're talking about, did you mm -hmm. guys hear about I this? Did, yeah. Yeah, I did, it. Yeah, Poland and other former Iron Country countries, guess what? They've got fleets of old Russian MiGs and Sukhoi bombers and stuff. If they can send those old Russian fighter jets, which the Ukrainian pilots know how to fly, the Ukrainian pilots have shown in the first few days that they're actually pretty damn good. Um, you heard of the Ghost of Kiev? Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Supposedly the, the first ace shot down five things. Anyway, that might really help Ukraine stem the horrific bombardment that they're receiving right now from the Russian Air Force and missile forces. They can fight back, you know, and then maybe be able to hold their cities even longer. They're totally outnumbered, outgunned, and overwhelmed, but so we're sending in lots of military aid, um, but these sanctions, where was the thread of my thought? Okay, if you really go down several years, right? Say Russia gets stopped, the world order is saved. Now you've got the US, NATO, Britain, Japan, all these major countries realizing how powerful that is. What if somewhere down the road we get yet another president like a George W. Bush who decides, I want to uh, manipulate some intelligence, which isn't all that great, and pretend like the enemy I really want to go destroy is creating weapons of mass destruction. Which, by the way, that was one of Putin's lame excuses for going into Ukraine. He said that deliberately because he was sending a message to us, mm -hmm. you know, saying, you did it in Iraq. Mm -hmm. Why can't I do it now? But what if we get another president who decides to unilaterally just fabricate BS like Putin has done even more blatantly, but we did in Iraq in 2003. Um, and then the world community turns those sanctions on us. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's bad. That could happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I could see, you know, who knows, a decade or two or three down the road. And by then, other things will have happened and the world order might shift even more. Heck, we might be using Chinese renminbi instead of U.S. dollars at that point, possibly, as their economy keeps overtaking ours. So there's a lot of things to speculate about and be in the mix. So, you know, looking, t looking towards a possible resolution, it kind of sounds like you think this is going to be going on for years. I sure as hell hope not. I don't really know. Uh, the sanctions may actually force Russia to back off a lot faster than I expect. But I also believe Putin's going to, he's going gangbusters to try to annihilate Ukraine's ability to threaten Russia mm -hmm. as fast as he possibly can. I'm, I'm sure he's got all kinds of scenarios that he would accept. Mm -hmm. If he gets half of Ukraine, like what they call the left bank or eastern Ukraine, 
you know the Dnieper River basically divides Ukraine. And on the left bank of the Ukraine is where a bunch of largely Russian speakers live. On the west bank of Ukraine, historically, they've hardly ever even been under Russia. They were more under Polish mm -hmm. influence, you know, in the Middle Ages and mm -hmm. Renaissance era when Poland was an empire. Yes, Poland was an empire at one point. Kind of cool, huh? Cool. So there's, there's, I can't imagine there's a scenario in which Putin is going to withdraw and be like, sorry. all right, my bad, <laughs> you know, sorry, Ukraine, you know, we'll, we'll leave, right? Yeah. So, so we're going to have to come to the table and figure out something that we can give him, I would think, at the very least, to help him save face mm. or make him feel like he's getting something worth backing out for. I don't know. It's really difficult for me to speculate about that. That's like super high-level international <laughs> diplomacy time, right. way above my pay grade. I just hope that we have some really smart people in our State Department, and so does Britain and France and Japan. And, I mean, everybody else who's going to be at the table yeah. with Russia. Uh, but, yeah, it could end up Ukraine having to write off uh, Luhansk and Donetsk um, Ukraine obviously at this point doesn't want to give up anything to the invaders and I mm -hmm. don't blame them you know mm -hmm. and they're slaughtering their people right you know quite deliberately right now so I don't know I don't know how that's all gonna fall out but because it kind of sounds know. like the current strategy is hit them with these really tough sanctions and and hopefully the Ukrainians can hold out long enough for those sanctions to impact to bring to bring people to the table that seems to be what our people are speculating and trying for at this point but of course they're going to keep being flexible too and see how this plays out it's only been 12 days that's wild when you think about it i know it's literally only been 12 but yeah it feels like that's why i say this feels like the berlin wall coming down it feels like we have literally just entered into a whole different yeah. era yeah. all of a sudden. And it's kind of hard to imagine what's and, uh, on the other side. We, yeah, we're not really, we can speculate all day, but in being trained historians, we can probably come up with some pretty good scenarios, but we're not going to know. Is there any, sure. this is my, my little last bit of speculation, is there any chance that the the Russian people feel the sanctions before Putin decides I need to come to the table and figure out a solution here and yeah. actually stage some sort of Russian revolution. Wow, uh, the history does not support that. I'm sorry to say. Now I don't know. Just a little bit of indulgence if in my things, imagination. <laughs> I don't know if, <laughs> if things have changed enough in modern times that there would be a, a quicker resort to that. But throughout Russian history, you, could, you see that the Russian people have endured a hell of a lot of deprivation and, quite frankly, enslavement, you know, serfdom and all kinds of subjugation to an autocratic state in order to have security. You know the social contract, right? right. <laughs> yeah, we all teach about that. Well, ultimately, that's what this comes down to. The Russian nation, the people there generally seem to tolerate more of giving up their natural rights in order to feel more secure mm -hmm. than other states are willing, or other nations, other peoples. Yeah. Like Americans, we really idolize this idea of having freedom. Mm -hmm. And so we tend to be willing to put up with a bit more chaos, even in our streets. Though mm -hmm. obviously there's always authoritarian folks that want to immediately crack down on anybody carrying a sign. Unless, of course, they like the sign. <laughs> but any sign that they don't like, then they want to send in the guys with clubs to beat mm -hmm. them. But... Uh, we do tend, you know, we've got it in our Bill of Rights, in our Constitution, that we're supposed to actually tolerate a bit more chaos in the name of us retaining more of our personal liberties. You know, it's a balancing act, and every society 
decides through history, basically, um, just how much security are they willing to give up in order to have freedom. And I guess that's where my mind is going. I don't know enough about modern Russia to, to know where they are right now. But I think, like, it seems like even if they even if they are willing to give up more of their freedom in exchange for that security, mm-hmm. that they, just the access to what's out there, the, the material goods, yeah. the, you know, they're, they're in a much different place now than they were um, early yeah. 20th century. And is that enough for them to look around at all the things that are being taken away that they don't have access to anymore? Um, all the goods and services and things that they they're just not going to have access to in the coming weeks is that enough for them to say like wait a minute this is crap well uh, we don't want to live like this it's just the propaganda like do they have strong. enough freedom propaganda is very strong right yeah but i think that that's wishful thinking yeah because we've been waiting for the chinese people to overthrow their communist rulers for decades now that they opened up Right. Since Nixon went there in the 70s and then by the 80s you had Deng Xiaoping and the pragmatists and basically the Chinese have become capitalists. Mm -hmm. But they're still ruled by a ruthlessly authoritarian communist party and it's a police state and it's just getting more and more of a Mm -hmm. police state under Xi Jinping, who's the most powerful Chinese dictator since Mao Zedong. But the Chinese people also, many of them are entering the middle class and they're getting access to all those fun goodies. So we used to think that as long as capitalism, consumer goods can Mm -hmm. flood into a country, that that would inevitably turn the country democratic. That was wishful thinking, pie in the sky thinking. The Chinese turned that on its head and they're actually doing that way more successfully than the Russians are they're definitely the ones to really watch out for. But at the moment, Russia's the one that's attacking. They're the immediate, the the imminent threat. (laughs) Yes, obviously a lot of people in Russia have gotten used to all the goodies that, you know, consumer capitalism can bring you. And honestly, that helped bring an end to the Cold War. You know, you know what the commodity that young Russians wanted the most in the 1980s? Blue jeans. You got it. American-made Levi's. Levi's. They would sell them by the trunk load on the black market streets out of their trunks of their cars. And Beatles music. (laughs) Yep, Paul McCartney and Wings did a massive concert right after the Soviet Union collapsed in Red Square, right in front of the Kremlin, because those young people especially... They had been secretly listening to American rock and roll, which wow. was banned because it was corruptive and, well, apparently it worked. <laughs> you know, So, I mean, it's possible that enough Russian people are going to be hurting enough and missing all the goodies. Mm-hmm. That, But Putin runs a very effective and powerful police state with the cult of personality, the propaganda, the utterly ruthless secret police. You know, the NKVD became the uh, KGB, which he was a lieutenant colonel in. That's why I called him a cold-blooded assassin, because he is. He's an executioner and a torturer. Mm -hmm. And he's never lost that mentality. That's the way he sees the world. Um, And now they're the FSB. It's the same group, though. In fact, Putin was the leader of the FSB, which, and then he became the leader of the Security Bureau under Yeltsin in the 90s, and that's how he got the the stepping stone to power. He became Yeltsin's premier in 99. Yeltsin drank himself to death by 2000. Putin becomes president, and Putin was the one waging the second Chechen war. He was directing that, and if you want to see what Ukraine's going to look like in a year. Look up pictures of Grozny. Grozny is the capital of Chechnya, which was a breakaway republic. And under Yeltsin, they brutally destroyed it. But under Putin, 99 to 2000, they utterly, utterly destroyed it. Grozny was referred to as the most destroyed city on the planet. That's what he has in mind for Ukraine's cities. And they're doing it right now. They're mm-hmm. starting. Wow. 
So they're just doing slash and burn. Is that what it's called from like the Civil War? Uh, scorched earth. Scorched earth, yeah. Scorched Or you right. could call it shock and awe. Shock and awe. Mm. Listen to me. Slash oh, and burn. wait. Oh, that's my. an American term. We shouldn't use that. Oh, sorry. You know, sorry, because we're the good guys. <laughs> we always do everything that's best. All right. Well, you've been listening to a conversation about the crisis in Ukraine with your local friendly government teachers. If you have any additional questions that we did not cover, you can tweet me at govgirl614 on Twitter. Or if you have any ideas for additional episodes, you can tweet those too. Special thanks to colleague Tim Smith and Caitlin Robbins for helping me with this episode. Thank you, Kelly. That was a lot of fun. It was really fun. All right. Bye, everyone.